From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you downloaded this. It really helps us grow. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Mary Klingen-Smith, professor of surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Klingen-Smith is a giant in the field of surgical education. Her longstanding interest in surgical education started at the beginning of her career. She attended Duke University for Medical School and completed her residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where, as you'll hear, we shared a mentor. She went on to become the chair of the American Board of Surgery in 2017 through 2018 and has been the lead author of the last four editions of the Washington Manual of Surgery. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I know I did. Dr. Klingensmith, welcome to the surgery set and to Madison. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, it is such a pleasure to finally meet you. I grew up reading your name, I should say, and hearing it in conversation. The University of Washington, where I trained, my program director invoked you constantly. And then I worked in a lab, David Soibel's lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where you had preceded me by a few years. I was always instructed to read your papers as the example of how to do it right around here, for goodness sakes. (laughs) It turns out, actually, that surgery is a small world. I'm pleased to know that we're actually surgical cousins. Yes, I know. It's fantastic. um, Actually, yeah, we have the same lineage. And it's really exciting for me to meet you as a person who sort of continued that lineage of the research experience that I was part of in Dr. Soybel's lab. And so, yeah, so surgery is a small world, as it turns out, and um, it's good to meet you. The temptation for me to dive deep into zinc physiology and the gastric gland is very <laughs> strong, but let's, let's take a step back. And can you give us an overview of your journey from surgical trainee to now the person who designs the world of the surgical trainee. It may end up sounding deliberate as I describe it to you, but I will assure you that it wasn't completely deliberate. And it's interesting that you mentioned the time that I was in Dr. Soibel's lab because that was sort of foundational in where I am today. And it was in that, uh, as a resident in training at the Brigham, I took two years to do my research with Dr. Soibel. Um, and so this was in the 90s. And believe it or not, at that time, computerized order entry was just an idea. And the Brigham was getting their first iteration of computerized order entry. And they were looking for house staff to serve on this committee that could help design computerized order entry. And I was a lab resident, so I didn't have the clinical demands of my co-residents. And so I signed on to that. And I found out that I really loved planning things and thinking about what the implications of a computerized order entry might even be on resident learning, workflow. You know, we had to carry information in our heads at that time about drug doses and interactions. And and this computer interface was going to take care of all that. And so we had some really deliberate discussions. And while I was doing, in my case, not zinc uh, movement in the gastric mucosa, I was looking at uh, sodium chloride and potassium transporters. I knew that that was not going to be my future. <laughs> I knew that I was not going to uh, be a basic researcher or a surgeon who combined uh, sort of basic research with clinical care. But I really was kind of on fire about, ooh, this this sort of more education, training, and admin piece was really interesting to me. I finished my residency at the Brigham and knew that I wanted my 
sort of scholarship, if you will, as an academic surgeon to be much more in education areas. And similarly, at that time, you may be surprised to know that there were no surgical skills training programs uh, in the U.S. except, well, in North America, except for in two places. There was one at Southern Illinois University in Springfield, Illinois, and one at the University of Toronto. And I wanted, as my first job out of residency, to start a skills lab, which sounds, now when I think about it, kind of audacious that a new grad would think she could do this. But I was fortunate that my now boss, uh, Tim Eberlein, who's a chair of surgery at WashU, was really excited about the idea and said, I want you to do this. I want you to come. I want you to set that up. I want you to spend some time observing uh, what other successful places that are doing it have done. And so that was actually how I got my start in wow. surgical education. Let's take a moment to just shout out to the quality of our mutual dad mentor, David Soybell, because I went to his lab knowing full well that I did not want to become a zinc biology researcher, and he had transitioned it by the time I got there into different sorts of transport. I was looking for a mentor who would let me do a master's in health communication on the side, knowing that I wanted to study how doctors and talk to each other and talk to patients Mm -hmm. while working in a lab and maintaining sort of a foothold in surgical science. And he could not have been more enthusiastic about that, about teaching me about how to make a hypothesis and be scientifically rigorous in everything I do and in everything in life. And then, you know, giving me that foundational experience in the lab that I have found totally translates into this non- biochemical world that I live in now. Absolutely. And I totally echo that. I will say that he taught me very much sort of how to to think as a scientist and think about how to apply those ideas and principles and rigor to everything I did. And we would have many really interesting conversations when I was basically, you know, looking at amphibian gastric mucosa under a microscope. And then later he and I would talk about things that had nothing to do with that, but it was actually more understanding sort of how he thought and approached problems. And he continues to be a mentor and and close advisor of mine. I've talked to him from everything related to issues uh, of my own career and sort of the next steps to take. But even more recently, we've been having a really interesting actually email conversation, he and I, about how a man can mentor a woman. Um, because this, there's some concerns about has this so-called Me Too movement disrupted the willingness of men to mentor women. And in surgery, where there are still more men than women, and certainly um, you know, women and men need mentorship, so he obviously was a man who mentored a woman. And, and so we've had this really interesting conversation. And I love the way he thinks. Uh, I love the way he approaches problems. And so we've just been having fun sort of dissecting this problem, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I truly have benefited. He's, he's been one of my most trusted and closest mentors. And right. gender regardless, he's been amazing. Yeah, it's like you can dissect a hush puppy and you can you can dissect a a problem of surgical mentorship and surgical training uh with the same tools correct. right correct so let's flash forward then you know a few years you've started your lab or your mm-hmm. your surgical simulation work yep. at WashU just briefly give us the trajectory from there to sort of the, the problems that you're working on now yeah so again it may sound like it's deliberate but I, I just trust me here that it wasn't uh so I did a lot of that skills lab work had some early successes there in terms of you know, some publications and presentations nationally. And as a junior faculty member, just was fortunate to have 
some papers presented at, I guess, what were some key meetings and in front of some key people who then approached me and said, well, would you consider working with me on this idea or this project? And that's actually how I got involved in some stuff looking at the transition in the duty hours. And so I was on lots of panels and task forces related to that. And then um, that actually led to an opportunity to uh, be an associate editor of what was then, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the textbook. It's now called Scientific American Surgery. Hmm. Uh, ACS Surgery was the name of the book at that time. And I worked with Stan Ashley, who actually was my residency program director the last few years I was at the Brigham, and Stan was the editor of that textbook. Well, Stan uh, was in leadership on the American Board of Surgery, and this was in the late 2000s. The ABS had basically provided all the infrastructure and funding for SCORE, which was brand new at that time and really having trouble getting traction in residencies. Um, They needed someone who could come on, join SCORE, and figure out how to sort of reinvigorate it, retool it, and make it useful to residency programs. It was this great resource, but no one was using it. And SCORE is sort of, it's a set of established questions that you can work through or problems that you can work through so it's, online now, right, to sort of correct. understand so it's the not key just things questions. It's a whole curriculum. Right. Uh, it's got, you know, now we're up to something like uh, 600 some topics. So it's sort of questions. It's uh, learning objectives for each of those topics within that. There are some uh, sort of multiple choice questions that allow you to sort of test your knowledge. Um, it's textbooks. It's videos. It's, it's all of that. So it was this big sort of platform, and it was meant to be the unified curriculum for training and surgery, and which was at that time this really new concept. So at any rate, I got asked to sort of join SCORE. It led to this opportunity for me to take a leadership role, and we were wildly successful, as it turned out. Um, I guess I was good at sort of figuring out what might work and, and being compelling and sort of telling the story to other residency program directors. And So SCORE suddenly started becoming successful, and then that led to more opportunity, and one opportunity then was being elected as a director of the American Board of Surgery, and that's the body that sets the training and certifying standards for residents who want to become independent practitioners in surgery, and so I got elected to the board and then eventually got elected as chair of the board, and that's the position that I just uh, uh, vacated uh, in June of 2018. Just so everyone's clear, that that's a very high position in the world of surgery. <laughs> this is, it this is, is a yes, queen it is. of surgery. <laughs> well, yes. Um, and uh, in that role, you have the opportunity to really think deeply and, and shape at a very fundamental the way, the way we, we experience surgery, the way we train in surgery. And I think what's, what's fascinating about surgery is, right, no, if you just treat it as an apprenticeship, if you just go to the hospital and do operations, it is fundamentally true that no two surgeons have the same training at all, right? Absolutely. Like, because right. the experiences you, they have through that are, right? are totally variable. Right. It, it's incredibly rare for two surgery residents to operate on the same patient, right? right? So my right. experience next to all the other pe- people I trained with was completely different. We had a completely different panel of patients on whom we learned the art of surgery. Yes. And so how do you create like that standardized product of a surgeon who knows how to do all the things when everybody's experience is definitionally completely different from everyone else? That's a great question and a great point. And one thing that um, has been, you know, sort of central to the conversations about how we might need to retool and redesign training. And one of the pieces that's really important is that we help residents understand that there's transferability between the case that you did with attending, you know, 
Dr. Smith yesterday that you're now going to do with attending Dr. Jones the next day, that there's some transferability of what you learned in that case to the next case. And, and being more transparent in that processing of the thinking about the skills you're learning, having applicability to different situations in different cases, and really helping you understand that you're sort of building a toolbox, and that while you and I may not have had the same cases that we trained on, we actually, oh, we have the same tool, and we sort of reflect back on that. And what that can allow us to do then is when we have a, a resident who's completed training, completed their certification exam, and is now is uh, independent in the community caring for a patient, they're able to sort of reference that I, I do have all these tools in my toolbox. And so, yeah, while I've never seen exactly this presentation of a perforated ulcer, ah, I, but I do remember. I've done some things that can help me figure out how to best care for this patient in this moment. And I think we have not done a great job as educators in helping the residents see those pieces of what they're learning. So, yes, it's not equivalent, but in the end, the tools learned are equivalent. Right. And that's sort of the basis now of this competency-based model that we're moving towards, right. or at least piloting in surgery, right? Yes. Breaking down those complex operations into discrete, testable steps. Pieces, and yeah. pieces that we can evaluate along the way and, and give feedback to the trainee that this piece of this operation or preoperative evaluation was either done well or not and give specific feedback about how it could be done better. In those conversations, ideally, help the trainee both realize their deficits and where they can improve, but then hopefully when they encounter that again, not only do they know what to do, but when they see it in a more complex form, they can sort of call back to those tools that they already have and, and sort of refine that tool or add a new tool to their toolbox. But the key to that is is making it clear to them that this is a discrete tool, right? Yes. It's not to like pixelate residency and grade every no, single action in right. every single operation. Right. It's to it's say, actually in some degree actually meant to look at more commonalities than differences. Yeah. Um, and and thinking about transferability of abilities and skills, um, so that you're you're competent in this thing. Yes, you you know enough about. Um, uh, say, uh, hernia disease and its presentation and its potential complications, yes, there's certainly some, as you put it, sort of pixelated pieces of knowledge you must know about individual discrete things. But there might be something about that transferability and understanding of knowledge that you could apply to other situations and apply to patients that present with a complex form of that uh, entity. Right. It's so clear to me as I like progress in surgery when I look at people who have true mastery and expertise, it's not so much that they know how to do one specific thing. It's that it's obvious that they know if that one way of doing it doesn't work, they have like 30 more ways to try, right? It's, yes. the, it's the depth of that bench. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and how do we teach that? In your talk, you mentioned briefly that there's there are benefits to learning 20 different ways to do something, and then there's benefits to learning one way and doing it over and over, right? And and those seem to be in competition as, yeah, as a best I, model. I, I think that's right. I think you know, there's no substitute for repetition, right? Yeah. I mean, we just we know a lot about sort of adult learning, and we know a lot about sort of psychomotor skills, and you know, you think about uh, a basketball player throwing free throws, right? They have to just do that over and over to get sort of get the muscle memory down, right? So that they can consistently hit that three-pointer. There's definitely some of that in surgery, right? We do have to have a certain amount of time on task to 
both sort of develop that muscle memory, but even just ingrain, you know, mentally, not just sort of the muscles, but sort of the mental processing of how to approach certain problems and questions. We definitely need time on task. We need some of that depth, but we also need to think more deliberately about what that breadth means. And if some conditions in surgery are actually fairly rare, but they're life-threatening. So there aren't many of our patients that present with a perforated ulcer these days. That used to be a more common thing. But when they do present, we have to know how to care for that patient in a really expeditious and thorough manner. And so while I maybe haven't seen a lot of that in training, I've hopefully seen enough. And then I've managed enough other sort of perforations of the GI tract that I, I kind of know what I need to do there. And, and so that I can transfer some skills that I maybe did in a greater degree of repetition and bring that to bear on this particular case. So it is that balance of both breadth and depth that we've got to figure out. And this by breaking it up into these discrete tasks, I think that helps, right? Because like, it stops being like, oh, I do a, a gallbladder with Smith, and he does it this way, and then I do it with Jones, and he does it this way, and they are therefore completely different operations, right? right? There's like, if you overlay them, the vast majority of it's In kind the of end, the, the same, right? Out. The gallbladder yeah. comes out, <laughs> and there's some steps involved, and and yep. ultimately, like, it's it's more similar than it is different in recognizing that not only that, but like a lot of the same steps you'd use to take out a gallbladder are the same steps you use to take out an appendix, exactly. right? I mean, it's exactly. the the, exactly. There is universality to what yes. we do. And, it's and less different. And helping the residents see that commonality and point out where some of these skills. So, you know, accessing the abdomen in a laparoscopic case would be a great example that, right, you, you probably have done that enough times that you do have a certain sort of sort of muscle, muscle memory, so to speak, that doing that safely is something that you can do really well. But then, you know, if you're doing a, a laparoscopy for, say, a small bowel obstruction, which is still relatively rare, I guess, that you have that sort of muscle memory to safely access the abdomen because you've done it a gazillion times on a routine cholecystectomy or appendectomy. So I guess what I have seen over the years I've been in surgical education is we have not done a great job of helping our residents see the commonalities. We've put sort of things in buckets and silos. And maybe it comes from sort of counting cases. You know, you have to have a certain number of cases in certain areas to even be eligible to sit for your boards. Maybe we need to not count those cases so much as somehow like common experiences. And I'm not sure what that looks like exactly, but that thought I think is what will take us forward as we think about a, a redesigned paradigm for training and finishing graduates who have all the skills they need and are confident in those skills. Fantastic. It's such a pleasure to, to hear about your vision for the future, to hear about our shared experience in the lab. Such a joy to have you come and, and join us. I would love to take this for another hour and a half, but thank you so much for joining us again on the surgery thank set. You. Thank you so much. Um, this and has been uh, a lot, a lot this of is fun. great. Thanks. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with Dr. Mike Mulholland, professor of surgery and the chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Michigan. We talk about how good intentions in developing a diverse faculty are not enough and how you can design a system that does the job. Tune in, and thank you for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. 
You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.